It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. I'm Chris Stafford, and this is Season 1, Episode 8 of Art, the podcast about female artists. If you don't feel it, I'll make you feel it. I'll show you what I mean. If you don't feel it, I'll make you feel it. I'll bring you to your knees. If you follow me. Hello, and thank you for joining me. I'm delighted to say that we have a wonderful lineup of guests to come here on Art. Although this is only the first season, I am absolutely overwhelmed by the response. It's been fantastic, and I hope that you'll become part of the community by joining us on social media and also by letting us know who it is that you would like to hear from because we are talking to artists not just across the U.S., but around the world. It's a great opportunity to get to know the people behind the art. I'm sure you have favorite artists, female artists, wherever you live. You can drop us a line to hollowellstudios at gmail.com or post on our Instagram page, The Art Podcast. That's The Art with Two A's Podcast. I certainly would love to hear from you to get your response to the show as well and let me know what you would like to hear. Well, one of the things that we're doing on the show is asking our guests to suggest other female artists who we should be profiling here on the show. And my guest this week is someone who was suggested by Debbie Muller. And if you've listened to earlier episodes, you'll know that Debbie was a guest on episode two. And the idea is to build this community of female artists through the podcasts and hear about our guests their mentors, their, maybe their teachers, and or maybe just artists that they admire and have done over the years and even maybe purchased some of their art. So that brings me to this week's guest. Sarah Sedwick was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, where her father actually was a member of the Cleveland Orchestra. She graduated with a BFA from the Maryland Institute College of Art And then after school, Sarah worked as a waitress and watered plants even to make ends meet and took a break from art. In 2007, she moved to Oregon, where she has her studio and runs an online art mentorship program. She now divides her time with traveling to teach workshops on still life painting in oils. And Sarah describes her style of oil painting, still life and portraiture as loose realism. Her paintings explore the undercurrents of meaning we impart to the objects around us. She sells between 50 and 100 paintings a year, and her paintings are now signed with just her last name. 
But as Sarah explains, there was a time she would only use her initials so as to hide her gender. Sarah is also the author of Dynamic Still Life for Artists, published in November 2022. Sarah, hello. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm excited to be here in your first season. Yes, this is an exciting first season because we've already had some people you know, you know on the show and more to come, I'm sure. Mm. And that's how I heard of you. Yes, and I'm a lover of art podcasts of all kinds and so happy to see a new one, particularly with your focus on women in the arts. That's right. I mean, we really want to spread the word because, you know, we know how women really have been forgotten in historically in, in art. So we want to just wrap our arms around everybody. Um, it doesn't matter what medium. And we've had a few painters like yourself or, already and lots more to come. But it's an opportunity, Sarah, to tell your story because it, it sounds to me as if it, it's, it's been in your blood to, to paint and to be an artist, but not so. You you don't have any visual arts in your family, you were telling me. Not that I know of. Uh, certainly not in the immediate and extended family that I've gotten to know in this life. I was raised in a home with the arts, though I would definitely say my father is a classical musician and was a classical musician. He's a cellist for his career. And so being... So, you know, I was raised in a home where a career in the arts was a viable option. Not that I was, you know, pushed towards make art your career, art will be your career throughout my life. But I was certainly encouraged to make my art, do art, you know, from a very, very young age. My parents recognized that I was obsessed and I think it made their lives a lot easier because they didn't have to hunt around for extracurricular activities for me to get myself involved in. It was just sort of like, oh, what art camp is Sarah going to this summer <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> and that was in Cleveland, Ohio, where you were born and raised. Correct. I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. My father still lives there. He was a member of the Cleveland Orchestra. But I don't live there anymore. Uh, after high school, I went to art school at Maryland Institute College of Art, MICA, in Baltimore. And I loved it in Baltimore. I stayed there for a little while after I got my BFA. I did not get a master's. I did not go on to pursue a master's degree. Um, instead, you know, we can get into a little bit about why. But as far as my timeline stayed in Baltimore for a while, and then I was back in Cleveland for a couple of years, and then I moved out to Oregon, where I currently live in Eugene, Oregon, and I've been here now for 16 years, Chris. That kind of blows wow. my mind to say that. And yet, I have to say that 16 years in Oregon somehow has still not turned me into a West Coast person. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you're used to the climate by now. I love the climate in Oregon. You know, we have seasons and yet not really. I had enough snow growing up in the Midwest. Yeah, for sure. In in Ohio. I'm going to step back just to your childhood for a moment, Sarah, because you mentioned that you, you were obviously keen on art from a young age. But what did that look like to you and what mediums were you using? Well, uh, I've spoken about this before, and I mentioned it in my book, but my mother likes to claim that I could draw a perfect circle at the age of one. 
And uh, I think that's a little bit maybe maternal bragging and pride and exaggeration, but uh, I really don't have any conscious memories of a time when I wasn't obsessed with mark making. And in the beginning it was drawing, it was markers, it was pencils, it was anything I could get my hands on. When I was a kid, I really liked to draw with black felt tip pen. I would have these spiral bound notebooks and I would draw through one side and then I would flip them over and I would draw through the other side. And uh, I'll tell you, Chris, I was just drawing princesses. It was princess after princess <laughs> after princess after princess. I liked what Julie Davis said in your last episode or the last episode that I listened to of yours about her early influences being children's book illustrators. That resonated with me big time because some of my earliest inspirations were also, you know, the beautiful children's book illustrations. Maybe Arthur Rackham uh, is one I can think of. But, uh, you know, I was a little girl in the 80s and early 90s and Disney movies, uh, <laughs> princesses, all of that mythology captivated me. And so so I would fill up one one side of all the pages of the sketchbook with princesses, flip it over and then fill up the entire other side. And that was probably my my main work <laughs> from about age one to, to ten. And then... <laughs> that would be your introduction to portraiture, was it? Oh, possibly, yes, but it was also, there was a lot of um, dresses involved, so I would say figure and, and fashion too, but I, I didn't think about it that way. Um, and I wasn't thinking about drawing people from life at all, at all. And, you know, when I was about nine, ten, my parents found me a private art teacher, and this woman, really thinking back on her, she reminds me a lot of who I am now. <laughs> she was middle-aged. She had a studio in her home. She was maybe a little older than middle-aged at the time. Not really sure, but she was a um, a working artist. She showed in galleries. She did commissions. She was a pastel painter, I believe, primarily. And she did a lot of genre scenes, a lot of uh, kind of Ohio-style Amish scenes, and she did commission portraits. And I would go to her studio. I can't remember if it was once a week or once twice a month. But I would go to her home and sit in her studio with her. I'd be at the drafting table and she'd be at the easel and she would teach me things. Um, when we ran out of things to, to do or if I finished early, I remember once she had me organize, take my 72 colored pencil, you know, Faber-Castell colored pencil set and arrange them in the order of the spectrum. I, I still remember being irritated by that. But she really um, took me very seriously for being that age. She taught me how to draw and render glass, for example. In you know, She formed my thought process around visualizing difficult subjects that our brains really don't know anything about capturing as only being values, shapes, and colors. You know, she de demystified things like that for me. I also remember one day she took me in her bathroom and she had a mirror that folded out three ways, you know, so you can see your own profile. And she had me draw a profile self-portrait from the mirror. Can you imagine a 10-year-old? And you were 10 years old. Oh, yeah, about that. And then when I was 10, she took me to oil paint for the first time. Wow, that was an early initiation then. Yeah, and I vividly remember it, uh, I have to say. So certainly, uh, and, you know, when I was 10 in the 80s, oil painting it's, it, it, it's funny to me because 
I talk to a lot of students and mentees nowadays who say, oh, I paint in acrylic because I have young kids at home or I paint I paint in water oils because I'm worried about my dog eating my paint, stuff like that. But like in, in the late 80s when this was going on, paint still smelled like paint. And I mean, I had I had probably turpentine. <laughs> Nobody was worried about me. Now, granted, my first oil painting lessons did occur outdoors because of the smell. And when you talked about your drawing in your sketchbooks and your Faber-Castell selection of colored crayons. Were you the little girl, whatever book was given to you, you would crayon in it and draw, you know, crayon and color the illustrations? No, but I did draw on my bedroom wall once and the punishment was so <laughs> severe that it really, it was once. No, no, I didn't draw in my books. <laughs> Introduction to graffiti then. Exactly. Yes. And I have to say, I, kind of loathe colored pencils to this day. And it it might have something to do with that. I actually don't know if that had been a punishment or not. Uh, But no, colored pencils aren't for me. They're way too fiddly as a medium and not at all fast enough. So it sounds as if your your parents were very encouraging of your interest in art right from the very early, earliest days. Absolutely. Yeah, and supported you in, in in your career. You mentioned that teacher who was clearly an inspiration for you. Who else was it that you were paying attention to in those early days? Uh, and not only of the teachers that you were exposed to, but but also the artists. Did you go to galleries and mm-hmm. and and start to have an appreciation when you were a teenager of of the masters and that sort of thing? You know, I did. I consider myself so lucky. So with neither parent being a visual artist, I do recall getting dragged to art museums an awful lot during my childhood. And I mean, dragged. Cleveland has a wonderful art museum. Uh, I also being, I remember being dragged to the St. Louis art museum quite a few times. And I mean, I mean, I just wanted to sit down, but, but I do still remember the pictures that I saw Manet really early on. Um, uh, we had some Georgia O'Keeffe prints in the house, which I recall. And I was exposed to Frida Kahlo at a young age, too. She was very inspirational. The narrative quality of her work is so interesting to me. Just the self, well, they're all, you know, mo- most of her work is self-portraits, but just the way that she incorporated symbolism into the self-portrait was captivating to me as it all fit into illustration. And so, no, I was exposed to a lot of art. And then as a teenager, uh, I was able to take classes at the Cleveland Institute of Arts, which were great, which were probably my, well, not my first introduction, but a deeper introduction into working from life as opposed to just making it up out of my head or copying pictures. And then I think really, really critically at a juncture where I was trying to make the decision about whether, about what to do after high school this was just a godsend. You know, I can't, thinking back on it, it just was such a stroke of luck. My high school art teacher who I had, who was also a huge influence on me and the trajectory of my life, arranged to bring in a teacher from a local community college after school hours to do an art history class, to basically present Art History 101, freshman community college art history to high school students that wanted to sign up for it. And uh, that opened my eyes to everything. So, yeah. What was your high school teacher's name? 
My high school art teacher's name was Sue Hood Kogan, and she is still out there and she's still making art. We're uh, we're Facebook friends. <laughs> but massive gratitude. And I have a huge appreciation for art teachers at all levels, but particularly high school art teachers. They don't really know what they do. And at what point then, through your early education, Sarah, were you thinking, this is something I want to do as a career? This, this I could make a living at? Never. <laughs> <laughs> it was just an obsession. I didn't think about it. You know, I, I don't think I've ever been too terribly self-reflective in that way. I've just sort of decided what I've been obsessed with and gone after it. Not that I'm not a planner. I definitely am not a fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants kind of person, but I, uh, it's sort of the opposite of most people's story. Most people say, oh, well, I wanted to go to art school, and my parents said, no, make a living. I probably should have always been aiming at art school, but I didn't think I was good enough, I suppose, or I, I was really good at academics. I was pushed and I was into it and I was a straight A student and I thought that my path was probably going to be. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Uh, normal college. I always thought that. Right up until the kind of decision point came. So I'm, I may be getting a little bit off the track of your question. Did I always know? No, I, I did not always know that I'd be able to make a living as a professional artist. And also all through art school, I also did not know that I would be able to make a living as a professional artist. And by the time I graduated art school, I was pretty damn sure that I was never going to be able to make a living as a professional artist. So back to my early childhood love and inspiration by illustration, I entered art school as an illustration major. And I think the more people from my generation, specifically that you speak to, who are realist artists in any medium, you're going to find that at some point in their life, they were an illustration major. There's reasons for that. I think it's one of the few departments in a traditional art school where drawing and painting stuff to look like stuff is still valued for one thing. But also... You know, many of us realist painters, we we like to tell a story through our art. We just don't necessarily want to do it with the, the help of an art director, and we find that out. But I entered art school as an illustration major with the, the idea that then I would have this viable career waiting for me on the back end, which in four years I learned was absolutely not the case. But, well, A, because I didn't want to do what was taught to me was required, which was move to New York City and start, you know, putting myself out there. I'm making air quotes, which 
25 years ago did not look like it looks now. It looked like printing out a physical book of your work, going around to art directors, knocking down doors, you know, asking for work. And I was terribly intimidated. But the other piece of that is that the world was changing a lot. I graduated art school in 2001. Facebook didn't exist yet. Digital cameras were not accessible, certainly not to 20, 21 year olds. Uh, And the traditional gallery system was still it. If you were going to be a fine artist, more air quotes. And so, oh, and illustration as an art form was also, had been for several years at that time, heavily shifting towards digital. And the illustration department would bring in these successful, famous illustrators to speak to us, and they all had sour grapes all over the place. They were going, digital artists are ripping off my work and there's nothing I can do about it. Um, Charging less, this and that. Traditional illustration is dying, and it was... It was a terrible thing. I mean, they weren't wrong. But I pretty much spent four years studying illustration, which was fascinating, fascinating program, and got out with the knowledge that I did not want to work as a commercial illustrator and not out of stubbornness, just it so happens that I have never had an illustration job in my entire life. So, you know, uh, I graduated art school in a pretty hopeless place. I had a lot of bad ideas about what you would have to do to make a living as an artist, either commercial or traditional, that were shifting radically under my feet at that time. I mentioned the traditional gallery system. Completely intimidated me, by the way, at the time. And then that all changed with the, uh, the coming in of social media, but just... I know I've spoken about this in, in other places and I've written about it in my book. I had what I call my quarter life crisis in my twenties and I really stopped making art. You know, I wanted to keep painting, but I really was having a lot of trouble with, with the doing of it. You know, I had this, these ideas that to, to be, to matter, art had to be big. That was the big, the first one. And you know, it had to be portrait figure. It had to be maybe, you know, the biblical narrative with multiple nude figures. But most importantly, it had to be big. And then you had to go through a gallery and all of that stuff. And I, I think a lot of the the things that I've heard you talk about with other guests about the male-dominated nature of our industry were more in effect a generation ago than they are today. I'm going to risk being non-PC and say that most of my teachers at art school were old white men. Not all. I had a couple of extremely influential female instructors at MICA who were amazing. One was named uh, Susan Waters Eller. One was named Nancy Roder. One whose name escape whose name escapes me was a great painter and spent every summer in Maine painting cows. And and you know someone commented, "You remember this woman's name who was so influential at MICA." But the people I got these bad ideas from and the people who I felt looked down on me because I was in a commercial art major were the dinosaurs of the school. And I think a lot of that's fallen away in the last 25 years. There's been so much empowerment in so many fears of life. And now I look around the art world and personally, I don't feel any defensiveness or any underdog status because of my sex. When I was in art school, absolutely. I was having a conversation about this just just the other day in a workshop, I think. 
about signing your paintings. And when I was in art school, I used to sign my paintings with my initials. Uh, just in the same way that an author might sign, a female author might sign their paintings with their initials, like, you know, P.D. James or A.S. Byatt, fantastic female novelist. Why did you do that, Sarah? Why? What, what, was, what was the voice in your head said that you had to just initialize your painting? To hide your gender identity. To be, to be on a level playing field. And I, I no longer would advise anyone to do that. And I would not attempt to hide my gender identity now myself. Although I do sign my paintings with my last name only. That is really just for, <laughs> just, just a choice. To be unique. Well, yeah. And to be brief. Yeah. Whilst you were in college and, and coming towards the end of college, Sarah, did you have any 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 friends, any girlfriends particularly who were going through art school with you, um, who who influenced you or you influenced them? And, and, and in terms of your then career paths, have you uh, any parallels with any of them? It's a great question. You know, I did not stay in touch with a lot of the people that I went to art school with because it it feels like everyone sort of scattered to the winds after graduation. Baltimore didn't feel like a place a lot of people wanted to stay, it seemed like, and a lot of people went on to graduate school. And so in the immediate aftermath of art school, I didn't keep in close touch with a lot of my connections. But then when social media came around, there was this renewed opportunity to connect. And so over the past 15 years... I have reconnected with some women that I went to art school with who have branched out in the arts in different ways. There's an artist named Kirsten Savage out of Colorado who was in the illustration program with me, who's now a fine art painter, figurative painter, uh, making it on her own. And I have, you know, I, I think it's funny. You, you look at art school statistically and you wonder, you know, how many of these people are really going to make it in the arts? And looking around, at least at the sample of people I'm in touch with, men and women from art school, it seems like a lot of people have stayed in the arts, whether they're art directors or graphic designers or being fine artists. Micah did something right. Now, in terms of then, you know, you, you realizing that maybe you weren't going to make a living when you graduated, but w what did you choose to do at that point? <laughs> I did life stuff. Um, what did I do? I floundered around, you know, I would keep on trying to, to paint. Um, but I wasn't making it easy on myself. You know, I would stretch this big canvas and then that would make me really tired. And then I'd be afraid to paint on the big canvas because it took so much time to make it. And I really, I was, I was going about it in a way that I later found out was the completely wrong way to hack myself. So what did I physically actually do with my life? I worked some jobs. I worked in a college bookstore for a couple years, uh, just doing nothing. I was a waitress for a while. I was a terrible waitress. I got married uh, the, around my mid-20s. I had a really interesting job <laughs> for for a, a small time amount of time there before we moved out to Oregon, uh, assembling Christmas decorations for corporate office spaces, which was quite 
quite an interesting job. You can imagine it's seasonal work, but I, I ended up being really inspired by the designers at that job who were really being creative with all this Christmas decoration. And if you look at my work every year or so, I'll put out this like spate of Christmas ornament paintings. And why have I been so drawn to painting Christmas ornaments? It's absolutely because I had that weird temporary gig. Uh, not, not, I wasn't designing. I was just, you know, putting this stuff together, but uh, seeing all the color possibilities of that. And then after that, I through that job, I got a job watering plants in corporate office buildings, which was actually an extremely enjoyable job. Uh, but manual labor and not at all, not really creative. I'm still into plants. So anybody that's got plant related questions, <laughs> feel free to reach out. I like to paint plants too, to this day. So, and then uh, we moved out to Oregon. My ex-husband and I for his job. And that, that was sort of a reset button. I, uh, when I discovered the daily painting movement, it kind of lit illuminated all of the ways that I had been going about it wrong, trying to become a painter post art school. I had been putting far too much pressure on uh, myself as far as the materials and the time needed and the, the size of the painting, you know, cause when you set out to make a 24 inch painting, that's a pretty big commitment of time, inspiration, materials. And if it's a failure, then it like hurts even more than if you just set out to do like a six by six painting of whatever's hanging around. And then tomorrow with a new day and so free. So that concept that, I didn't have to be perfect every day that tomorrow was a new day. It gave me a new life. I can't say enough how much artists like Dwayne Kaiser and Carol Marine who paved, paved the path for daily painting to become a thing have, have changed my life in, immeasurably. What did your paintings look like in those early days? Did you already commit yourself to oils uh, when, when you were at that stage in your career? I, I did. I d well, I did. I, I like to say that I'm a one-trick pony. I really don't know how to paint with acrylics. Of course, you take the brush and you dip it in the paint, you put it on the canvas. But I mean, I don't know how to paint with acrylics and make it look good. Uh, I I know how to paint with oils and I know how to draw in graphite and various other ink kind of media. But I don't really know how to do anything else. And, and um, I know enough about watercolor and gouache to know that they're not the easy side of the right. street. They may have their convenience aspects, but watercolor, I'm taking off my imaginary hat to all you beautiful watercolor artists out there. And I get a lot of recovering watercolor artists in my oil painting workshops, I'll tell you. But I knew that those were more challenging and unforgiving media. And I already had a lot of experience with oil, but I had to relearn it. And so what did my first daily paintings look like? They were horrible. They were horrible. They were mediocre at best, but it didn't matter to me what they looked like because of that freedom of, well, I just, I'll just do something else tomorrow. What were your cho chosen subjects though? So daily painting really is still life focused. And so still life was kind of a no brainer. I remember one of my earlier paintings when I was just getting back into it, I got this big floral bouquet and a fairly large canvas, probably a 16 by 20. It wasn't meant to be a daily painting. And I tried to paint this floral bouquet and I had a good time. The painting is awful, but um, it 
it was great. It just felt so good to be doing it. I know that all your listeners out there who are creative makers can relate to this, that when the dam breaks open even a little, when there's just a little crack in the wall between you and making your work, it feels mm-hmm. so good. It doesn't have to look good to feel good. Yeah. And I really had not painted anything thing significant at that point in six or seven years. I regret that time lost, but I am so grateful for the, for the passion and the, the excitement and just the burst of energy and release that I, I did experience and the joy that I experienced coming back to painting because of all that time away where I really was, something was missing for me big time, big hole in the soul there. And now these days in my life, I have this beautiful opportunity through my workshops to either connect people with painting for the first time or reconnect people with painting who've been away from it for a long time. And it's exactly the same thing. So that gratitude that I had then I get to refeel on an almost, almost monthly basis by sharing it and giving it back in my workshops. It's so, it's so great. I I'm tearing up now as I'm even talking about it. No, and you've been a pro now, I think, what, for eight years, is it? Something like that? Oh, longer than that. I've been teaching. So I have been, all right, so a big part of my art story, and I I think it's important that it's talked about, is that for the first few years that I was doing daily painting and selling my daily paintings for very little money online, I I was married and I was not paying the mortgage. So I had the luxury of beginning my daily painting career. And as Elizabeth Gilbert puts it in her wonderful book, Big Magic, I did not have to put the pressure of supporting myself. But that marriage did end. And so in about 2015, I became um, divorced and supporting myself 100% through my work. And at the time that I divorced, I said to myself, okay, well, I am completely willing to go back to waiting tables badly, waiting tables, if that's what it takes to support my art, I'm going to do what I have to do. And I had started teaching workshops locally, maybe in 2012. And then I started traveling to teach workshops in other places in, I think it was late 2013. So we're coming up on 10 years that I've been teaching workshops around the country now. And so I already had a little, a few connections with workshops. And when 2015 rolled around and I found myself supporting myself, the combination of the workshops and the selling the paintings online were enough to carry me. And I never have worked. I've never been paid for doing anything except making art and teaching art and now writing about art since that time. It's kind of, I, I feel very lucky. Because frankly, I'm not any good at any of those other things anyway. <laughs> it sounds though, Sarah, as if, you know, your soul went through a tra- complete transition and you were freed up and now you're, you're spiritually free in your painting and have been now for a number of years. Can you pinpoint that shift in your, in your heart and your mindset towards your art, towards the canvas? Well, I don't think I ever would have described myself as a perfectionist. 
accept in life. Like, you know, living up to the expectations of the people in my family that I would be successful, whatever that looked like. That's something that I've had more trouble letting go of and and have remained attached to. But as far as being a perfectionist on the canvas, I've had daily painting really helped me let go of that. And I've not picked it back up. And that's been a good thing. As far as spiritual, well, I mean, absolutely. Okay. So, but I, I view spirituality as a mountain that you're climbing where you, you climb up a little bit and then you hit a plateau and you go straight for a while or, (laughs) or maybe you're going around and around the mountain to go up. So you kind of retread over the same territory as you're going up slowly. I, uh, you have these leaps and then you stagnate a little bit. And I, um, I'm, I want to be aware of the transcendental moments when they happen. Like when, when, when a rather large painting falls off the brush rather effortlessly, I call them rock star moments, but there's something spiritual there. You feel, well, it's, it's the flow state, attaining the flow state. And, uh, but then there, there are, there's fear of becoming formulaic, falling into a rut. You want to have a nice equilibrium between a style and a brand and work that is predictable and eventually isn't going to, um, feed you anymore because it's not challenging. So one danger that I that I know about is that if I'm teaching a lot, which I, I am in a season of life right now where I'm teaching a lot, I feel like this is kind of just where I'm supposed to be right now. I'm teaching about, I don't know, 13 to 15 workshops a year, I think, at this point. Yeah. And I'm loving it. But it takes me away from exploring my own painting and pushing my own growth. But I can, I push, you know, through the workshops, I am able to, to do some of that work. And I can talk about that too. But here's the thing. If you're demonstrating all the Mm -hmm. time, if a lot of the painting you're doing is demonstrating, there's a certain way of painting that, that is a good way to teach and demonstrate the concepts you're trying to get across. But then if you fall into this rut, my fear is that I'll just then be in this rut where every painting is like successful for the same reason. So, you know, none of us, want to become a formulaic just kind of regurgitator of what we've been doing and one thing that i love love about instagram and i used to love it about blogging was watching the artists that i admired the most watching them change over time because the good ones always do and it's not that they're getting better over time they are but they're actually becoming more themselves over time as they're pushing themselves creatively and that's what i want for myself if you asked me, and I may be preempting you, but <laughs> I have listened to a couple of your other episodes, what my main goal is with my art, it's that I want to keep pushing myself and, and change in the way that I've seen the artists that I admire the most greatly change. Whether it's getting more and more abstract as they get older and their art practice gets more advanced, or whether it's moving into things like collage from just mainly painting or whether it's becoming a purely abstract non-representational artist now none of the (laughs) the last two things at least i guarantee will not happen to me 
but you get my my idea. People need to grow and change. And that is my main hope for myself. That actually leads me on to my next question, Sarah, because I'm fascinated by the merger of eye and style. Mm. And given what you've just said, that's that evolves, right? That that is an that is an organic process. And and in terms of you you growing as an artist. But was there any ever a point, and I'm thinking of your particularly your personal journey, where you felt free and that you could feel those two things merging and you establishing some kind of root system in your soul, if you will, towards your art? We're talking about style or are we talking about seeing? We're talking about the how the eye your particular eye for your artwork and your style converged. Yes. Well, so I think that a lot of what I'm teaching when I teach painting is a retraining of the eye to see like an artist instead of seeing in survival mode. Like most of us walk around all day, you know, can I eat that? Is that person friendly or hostile, et cetera, that survival mode. And then seeing like an artist is all about comparison and judgment. It's the only place where comparison and judgment are a good thing. Because what we're doing is we're we're saying how light or dark is that thing compared to the thing that's next to it. My my kind of mantra in my brain as I'm painting along, it goes warmer, cooler, lighter, darker. I look at one thing and then I look at the thing that's next to it. It's a constant process of comparison. So there's seeing like an artist and then there's style. And and a lot of uh, early painters are very concerned with finding their own style. I don't think that they shouldn't be. But the the thing is, being concerned about finding your style and lying awake in bed at night wondering what your painting style is, don't give you a painting style. And they don't help you find yours. The only thing that can help you find your painting style is making a lot of paintings and then stepping back and looking at them, preferably with somebody else who's got a bit of an objective view and then you can start to see things emerge for me i did daily painting really traditional daily painting probably not 365 but i'd say it's all at 250 a year for for a while two three four years and i have all my paintings archived in just simple folders on my computer by the date that i painted them and uh few years ago, two, three years ago, I was looking back through my work because I was putting together a slide presentation. And I came upon a painting that I had done about two or two and a half years into doing daily painting. And I went, oh, there I am. It was the first painting that I can look back on and see something that is a bit of a mirror of my style or feels like me to me. All the ones before were just technique, getting comfortable putting paint on canvas, experimentation, trying new things. And we need that phase of our development. So that would have been an aha moment then. Well, I knew I, look, I knew I was having a rock star moment at the time. I remember liking the painting, but I didn't have the realization, oh, that's a glimmer of my style until 10 years later. I wasn't thinking about it, really. It was, yeah, it was 10 years later. I, or maybe eight. But, you know, I wasn't thinking about it that much. And so I wasn't 
in search of my style. I was just doing what I was doing. And, and, you know, I love Carol Marine. I'm so inspired by her. I think she's a wonderful human. I think she's a wonderful artist. I was extremely inspired by her work early on when I got into daily painting. And, you know, five years ago, I, I, I feel like I got compared to her a lot. I would hear a lot. Oh, your work reminds me so much of Carol Marine. It reminds me so much. And, and I would be hugely complimented by that, but also a little bit like made uncomfortable because I'm not, I wasn't trying to emulate. I just had so much admiration, but you, you know what? I haven't heard that. No one said that to me in quite some time. And that's a good feeling too. You know, our, our people kept asking me, what's your, what's this style called? What's, what's the name for this kind of painting? I get a lot of DMs about this to the point where I just gave in and made one up. And I call my style loose realism because that's what it is. It's realistic representational painting that aims to say as much as I can with as little as I can do. Because A, I think that's less patronizing to the viewer. And B, it just creates art that's more fun to look at, more engaging to the brain. And C, it's more fun to paint that way. And, you know, I don't, I don't worry about, you know, as I'm setting out to make a painting, I don't worry about, is this painting going to look like a Sarah Sedwick? Is this painting going to be in my style? I just trust the process to use a cliched phrase. And generally, if I make it and I don't overwork it, it will look like a Sarah Sedwick. So it feels like you know or you knew when you were had arrived, so to speak, because you were having those rock star m- moments. Would that be then how you would define success? Was it a, a personal connection with, with the with the painting or each individual painting is that how you measured success or was it recognition by your peers or was it how many paintings you might sell in a year and the value of those paintings what what does it mean to you no no i think none of the above but look rock star moments happen to everybody all the time and actually probably i have rock star moments now about as frequently as i ever have throughout the the what is it 15 years that I've been painting since I picked it back up again they're just those days where everything flows like the painting falls off the brush and it's great and you you love the painting and you're happy and you're loving you love painting you love the painting you made the stars are aligned that's your personal rock star moment and I know exactly what you mean yes but does that need endorsement to you for it to be a public success or is that success within your personal relationship with that piece of art? I love it. That's, I love that question, that follow up. You know what? Absolutely not. It doesn't need any more endorsement. And frankly, it usually doesn't get it. <laughs> my rock star, my rock star moments tend to stay with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, you say everyone's had one on the weed, but yeah. I think artists and authors 
I can relate to both of those. I mean, it's a moment where it's it's so utterly satisfying that it really mm-hmm. doesn't matter a damn who else thinks what they, what anyone else thinks of it, does, right? When you're yes, when you step yes. away from the easel. Yes, and I would not say that I have arrived, and I would not say that I have more rock star moments today than I had ten years ago. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Like I think I have a higher. I know I have a higher success rate paintings that I, that I feel are successful and don't end up getting thrown away. So let's say 10, 15 years ago, I was probably, or should have been throwing away two out of every 10 paintings, maybe three out of every 10 paintings. I wasn't actually, but I should have been today. If I'm throwing out one in 20 and I'm not saying they're all good workshop demos are a little different. doesn't have to be a good painting to be a good demonstration, but I mean my own work. And part of that is because I'm planning my paintings in a more strategic way now to weed out the less successful outcomes before I make that painting. That's a huge part of it. Um, but, but so, no, you know what I mean. The rock star moment does not need to be reinforced by the marketplace. The worst painting advice that I have ever been given was given to me by a non-painter, so they can be off the hook for having dispensed it, but I'm glad to know it. And that was... Only put your best work out there. Only put your best work out there was the worst painting advice that I've ever been given. Because the truth is, <laughs> I am not the best judge of my best work. I know when my work is total garbage and should never see the light of day. And I am grateful enough for that. That's all I need. Um. Beyond that level, you know, the ones that I love the most tend to get a very meh response and possibly never sell. And then the ones that I am sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, this is a painting. People go crazy. I I have no way of knowing and I'm not that concerned about it. Whether a painting sells or not, honestly, I've got paintings sitting in my closet that mystifies me that why nobody wants them. But I figure there's something I can learn from that. But it isn't that I would learn it and then put it into practice. So I don't think there's a translation between, uh, I don't think it's healthy for artists to rely on market data for um, the direction that they're going to take their work. <laughs> so like I tell my mentees, if you hear that little voice in the back of your head saying, if I do this, it's going to sell, then alarm bells should be going off. Yeah. If I do this, it's going to sell is the kiss of death. Because then you're not making your art. You're crafting for the marketplace. Yes. Totally different journey. I got to say, some people might be looking at me and say, well, Sarah, you paint these Christmas ornaments every year, which I don't. Some years I take off because I just don't feel like it. And they always sell. But the reason that they always sell is because I only do it when I feel like it. And I'm really into it when I do it. And that comes through. If we just are churning out paintings because they sold the last five times we painted the same subject, the viewer gets that. 100% it comes through in the work. Absolutely. So then what do you like to hear about your art if you're eavesdropping? Hmm. Yeah. Well, of course, I like to hear, oh, that's beautiful. Because my main goal 
is for my art to be beautiful. One of the reasons that I'm a still life painter, I get this question a lot. Why still life? I thought that's what you were going to open with. And I was sort of preparing, but um, I get, I get asked that a lot and I got a lot of different answers to that question, but like beauty is one of them. You know, still life is one of the genres, the only genres where we really can play with color in a, in a limitless way. You know, you can add a lot of drapery to a portrait. You, you're still going to have a person that's brown, tan, or peach colored underneath it all. And landscape, you can put a pink building in it, but you're still going to have a lot of green and blue. I, I Regardless. So what do I want to hear when I'm eavesdropping in a gallery? <laughs> uh, I want to hear... That makes me mm. want to paint. Of course, I want to hear that's beautiful. You know what I do hear a lot that I don't really like, but I do like it, like I love, hate it, is when people say to me, you know, I never really liked still life, but this is different. Yeah. <laughs> that's a compliment that feels like an insult, but it is a compliment nonetheless. It is a compliment. It I've got a big, you can't see me. I've got a big smile on my face now, Sarah, because that is such a, a great moment, isn't it, for an artist to, you're turning someone's head, literally, and they're seeing art mm -hmm. in a different way to what they have done. Yes, and they're seeing the world in a different it's, way. It's you that has done that. I love it. And I love teaching other people how to do it too. I'm always asking my students, you know, what is the story you're trying to tell the viewer? Which that's where you start. That's your focal point. That's where you start thinking about your painting and the design. The other day, to, to that point, to, to what we're doing as painters, you know, we're showing the world what's beautiful through our eyes, telling them a story that, you know, they would not ever see it. But so one of my collectors the other day sent me a message on Instagram and it was a photo of a couple of eggs in a bowl. He, he said, I was making breakfast and I created a Sudwick. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're listening, you know who you are. Thank you for that message. You've totally reinforced my mission in life, which is to show the beauty in the ordinary and share it. Absolutely. And that leads me on to, to what is going to be your legacy. Is it when people do refer to having created a Sedwick and, you know, from a couple of boiled eggs, what, what is it? What does that mean to you? Well, I teach a lot. And I mean, I think I'm living out my kind of midlife legacy right now, which is giving back the gift that was given to me by the universe of discovering daily painting and being able to find my way back into painting. Cause I, I do, I get a lot of students both online and in my in-person workshops who have been taken away from art for many years, raising a family, having a career. And I am there holding, well, I'm there with them for a little bit of their journey back to that. And, you know, that's, that's a very satisfying aspect of my life currently. But as far as my legacy, you know, I like the show Antiques Roadshow. And I have a little mini fantasy going on that in 150 years, one of my paintings will be on Antiques Roadshow. And, you know, pulled out of Grandma's attic. And that's somewhat on Antiques Roadshow will be able to find out who I am, who I was, that I existed, <laughs> and what I did. Now, if that's not setting the bar high for posterity, I don't know what is. I'm being a little facetious, but I'm actually being completely honest about that fantasy. 
I also have well, just written. What were you going to say? Go ahead. No, I think it's a great fantasy to have. Uh-huh. You know, because I was going to ask you about your aspirations for the future, and it sounds like you're you're creating that, you're building um, your pathway now. Yeah, I want to be dead, and I want to be on PBS. Okay. <laughs> you know. Someone might be listening, Sarah. Well, that, that would be cool. I don't, I don't need to be dead yet, but what, in 150 <laughs> years, I'll take it. I got a message from someone the other day whose father had passed and, and they were wondering if a painting in, in the father's collection was one of mine or not. And um, that was an interesting experience. I haven't had that experience before, but it does make you think about the future. You know, all these paintings I'm selling, I sell, I don't know. Between 50 and 100 paintings a year, it's hard to, to say every year is different. And what's going to happen to those paintings? You know, are they going to get passed out in families or are they going to end up in yard sales? And, and what's the life? Uh, artists, especially now where it either gets shipped off to a gallery or we sell it through online, we rarely get to see the whole life cycle of a painting, but I have gotten to see it. So from conception to creation, to being finished, to being framed, to being shown, to being bought. And then you meet the buyer. And then the real end of that life cycle is you actually get to see the painting in the buyer's home in person. And I've had that experience a handful of times. It's very cool. But um, yeah, as far as, you know, my, my forever legacy, I don't know. I, I wrote a book. The book just came out back in November. It's called Dynamic Still Life for Artists. And I'm I'm very proud of it. I, you know, it was a joint effort. I had 17 beautiful artists contribute lovely work to the book. The publisher did a beautiful job of uh, designing the book and I can't take any credit for that. I would like to write another book. Uh, uh, mm, so, but, but there are many, many painting books and we kind of need more painting books. You know, the reason that I needed to write a book about still life oil painting is probably because the, the last book about still life oil painting is 20, 30 years old and it needs to be updated. So these things, they, they really do need to be, uh, revisited and redone. But I, I would like that to, to still matter to people in a generation or two. My book. What else would you like? And what are your aspirations? Is it to, to be hung in a particular gallery or museum? Or hmm. What are the goals? Uh, yeah, you know, I don't think about that a whole lot. I, I'm happy with the gallery relationships I have. I would like to continue to have gallery relationships. I would like to make bigger work and, and, more work and I would like to find more of a balance between teaching and painting. Like I said, I'm, I'm in a season of life right now where I'm very involved in teaching. And I think that it hasn't been a conscious choice on my part. And it isn't because I don't have the ability to say no, but I've been asked so much to teach and share what I have that I feel that it's where I'm supposed to be right now. And so I'm doing a lot of teaching. I'm away from home a lot, probably a third of the year, all told. And that's great. I enjoy that stuff. In five or 10 years, I think I'm going to want to be 
in a beautiful, stable studio doing my own work most of the time and and teaching less. And, and I don't have aspirations to be in a museum. I think that would be wonderful. But there's it, just, you know, there are so many things to have. There are so many prizes to win and jury shows to enter. And I tend to, I don't know, I guess I tend to set less store by that. If I like my own work and it's selling, I'm happy. And it's not so I don't have to go back to being a waitress, which that's, you know, that's 25 years in the past anyway. I'm not serious about that. The selling of the work isn't about money or supporting me. It's about the the real life cycle of a painting and how that gets completed. You know, I I make it for myself, but I don't make it for myself so that I can keep it forever. I make it to satisfy the need to make it. And then I want it to fulfill the need that the collector has to appreciate it and let it enrich their lives. So that's the so sales really are important to me in that regard. And I'd like that to keep happening. If you were to look around your house, Sarah, and I told you, you could only keep two pieces, everything else had to go. What would they be? Pieces that I own by other artists. No, that you've painted. Oh, I don't have a lot of my own work up on my wall. I really, I don't. Um, one of the pieces that, of mine that I have on the wall and I have had up on my wall for many, many years is a painting that I made when I was 19 on a study abroad trip through Micah to Israel. And it's a painting in oil on paper, plain, it's a plein air painting, believe it or not. Um, those people that know me are probably chuckling, but it's a painting of an olive tree. I was about 19 when I painted it. It has no background. Anyway, I think it's kind of elegant. I've had that on my wall for a long, long time. That would be one. Um, other work of mine that I have on my wall, they're really... There really isn't anything else that I would that I would say. Now, looking back, Sarah, with the career path that you've had, what would you say to your ten-year-old self, who was an art fanatic and had no idea what the future would hold? I would say to her, "This is it. This is your thing. Do not stop." And don't, and don't even think about any other thing. Because, like I said at the time, I I was I was the parent who was pushing the kid towards academia and away from the silly art thing. Uh, I would just, yeah, you know, I would. I would get real specific and say, do not quit in your 20s. Do not quit. But I would, I think, yeah, I would, I would want to say, this is, this is it. This is your thing. Like when you find your person and you just know that this is the person that's supposed to be your spouse for all time. If, if that happens for people, that story, that story. Because that's what it is for me. 
Well, before I let you go, uh, tell everybody how they can find you online and on social media and follow you, Sarah. Please join me on Instagram. My handle is at Bedwick Studio. That's S as in Sam, E-D-W-I-C-K Studio. I am on Patreon now and have been for a little over a year. Lots of videos. I share a lot of still life reference photos for those who like to paint still life from photos or need some inspiration for setting up their own. And that's patreon.com slash Sedwick Studio. My website is sarahsedwick.com. And that's where you can find information on all my upcoming in-person workshops. I have video workshops available. I don't have any live online workshops scheduled for this year, but I do have video workshops you can purchase if you'd like to become more familiar with my teaching style. But yes, like I said, I have still a number of workshops all over the country and even in Europe for the rest of 2023 with openings. So you can find those on my website, sarahsedwick.com. And thank you, Chris, so much for this opportunity. I wish your podcast to grow and flourish. I appreciate that, Sarah. Thank you. And your book, remind us of the title and how people can find that. Yes, the book is called Dynamic Still Life for Artists. It is not a very long book. It's full of pictures. You could probably read it in a day, an afternoon, and it is available Amazon, Barnes & Noble, maybe even your local art supply store, Dynamic Still Life for Artists and um, bring it to my in-person workshop with you, and I'll sign it for you. We'd love to. Sarah, thank you so much for being my guest and for being so open and sharing your journey with us, and I want to wish you the very, very best of luck, either with the paintbrush or with the pen. Thanks so much, Chris. It's been a really interesting conversation. And don't forget that you can join in the conversation too on our social media page at The Art Podcast, that's The Art with two A's, podcast on Instagram. I would love to know which artists you would like to hear from on the show. And if you have a moment when you're listening to the podcast, please do leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts because that makes a big difference to our rankings and to help others find the show. I'll be back next week. So until then, thank you for listening. (laughs) 